Welcome to Social Sessions. Today we're diving deep into the life and insight of a true football legend and storyteller, none other than the remarkable Graham Hunter. Get ready for a front row seat as we explore the highs, the curveballs and the unique tales that have shaped Graham's journey. From Spanish football sagas to behind the scene gems, we've got it all. Whether you're a diehard fan or just stumbled upon us, grab a comfy spot because this isn't your typical podcast. It's a personal invitation to connect, to learn and be inspired. So without further ado, let's kick off this session with Game Hunter on Social Sessions. So welcome to Social Sessions and today we've got the amazing Graham Hunter on. Um, so Graham, what I do with most of my guests is just kind of take them back to their childhood. Um, and I know um, you're a big Aberdeen fan, so um, was it Aberdeen you grew up? Please take me back, Sean, please. It's, it was far better than being old and and sore all the time. Yeah, look, I was, I was really lucky. Um, I was a child of the early 60s. Um, one of the things that uh, we were lucky about is we had a wee bit of garden at the back, so we played crosses and headers, I've got two brothers. There's a wee bit of garden at the front too where we ruined my parents' flower bed, we flower bed, and we got such hell for that. But it was back in the day that anybody who's younger than me, which includes you, will be sick of hearing people saying, when you hear footballers say it, I'm from the generation where you had a ball and you played every single spare minute. Rain, snow, sleet, sun, whatever it was, you <laughs> skinned, your, skinned your knees, you ruined your trousers, you, if you lost the ball, you, you did outrageous things to try and find that again. You fell out with whoever owned the ball because he was like, well, you haven't passed to me, so I'm off the ball. All that rubbish <laughs> was 100% true. So we played and we imitated our stars now everybody wants to say to their stars with a fucking banner give us your jersey or they want to go on youtube what we did was we imitated them you know we the first thing i can ever remember uh shouting after would have been you know around the 1970 world cup where if you scored a goal you, you wheeled away and you went Pelé! <laughs> like, like like david coleman had put pronounced his name during the 70 World Cup. Anyway, so and I was to, to tie it up, the, the lucky thing was um, both my brothers are younger, so to, to get me out of the house as a kid when when my mum was maybe, you know, overwhelmed at the weekend, my dad would start to take me to Aberdeen Reserves. He was desperate for me to see a player called Jinky Smith before he left for Newcastle. Jinky had been injured, was coming back via a couple of reserve games. So I'm, I'm told that I got to see him aged about five, maybe six, for the reserves. Aye. Jinky Smith was a wonderful, you know, Glasgow-born player, went to Newcastle, was in the side that won their last European trophy. In fact, maybe I think it's their last trophy against Hornved in 69. Anyway, is that the last that, trophy, that, is it? Yeah, it's, it's mental, isn't it? Um, and the next one likely will be tainted because it'll be bought with Saudi money, which is a, another disgusting subject. Long and yeah, short no. is, I walked as a kid into the reserves and they, in those days they played at Dodgy and you've you've done it everybody's listening has done it that first time you go to a stadium and have whichever part the terrace the stand wherever you whatever weather it is whether the floodlights are on or not if you're a youngster boy or girl you walk up and and you've never been in that big a, a crowd of people before 
there's 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 types of noises and levels of noises you've never heard before. For me, it happened to be late autumn, winter. The floodlights were on prior to a three o'clock kickoff, and that made the grass, the green of the grass, glow. Aye. And for me, that was it, Sean. From minute one, there was never. I mean, in those days, you didn't go about supporting a, another team from another city because they were bigger or something <laughs> like that. So that was me, like head over heels in love and anticipation of dad, dad. Who's our best player? When are we playing next? Why is he not playing? Did, did we really win the cup? At, at Hamden in front of 100 and whatever thousand people <laughs> against European Cup finalists, Celtic in 70, all that stuff showing. That was Aye. it. The, the, the touch paper was lit and it's been passion ever since, just total passion. It's funny you actually use the word passion because I was just kind of come on to that, Graham, and just actually, uh, you've just kind of basically answered my first kind of question on how, where you found your passion for, for football, but You've had an extraordinary career in um, journalism and you've had the, the, the kind of, maybe not even the luck because it's a hard work that's took you there, but you've had that absolute amazing um, experience of meeting some of the best players in the world and getting to kind of um, talk to them. So it's just kind of looking at the your own career and how that started. How did that start in journalism, game? Sean, you're going to have to reach through the screen like they used to do in Dastardly and Mutley and punch me in the nose to shut me up because there's so many ways I could talk about that and I'll, I'm not great at being succinct when I'm talking like this. I can do it on the radio or the TV, but <laughs> how to start, Sean, it, it was inside me. Um, first time anybody ever asked me, what do you want to do when you're older? I couldn't tell you why, but I said journalist. When the office that my dad worked in was tossing out old typewriters and whatever. It's <laughs> just for a laugh, I think. They took one <laughs> home. And so I would sit there, and most people probably now don't even know what a typewriter is because they don't <laughs> computers or iPads or, or whatever it is. Anyway, brought a typewriter home, and I used to sit, and if the dandies were playing, say, in a big... The one I remember is they were playing at Ibrox, and I suspect it must have been the... It might have been, not must have been, semi-final of the 1976 League Cup, which we, we won that semi-final 5-1 against against uh, them and then beat <laughs> Celtic in the final. Yeah, I'm going to be trying to be careful with my uh, adjectives. <laughs> but I would sit and listen to Radio Scotland live commentary and based on not being able to see it, but just listening to it, I would type out for, 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 for a lot of fucking reasons. I don't know. <laughs> But I'd be typing away there, like, maybe I'd type out a 500-word match report. No, I haven't seen a kick of the ball, just listening to, aye, aye. to Alistair Alexander, David Fancy, whoever it was. And from there onwards, um, I'm leaping quickly here. A lovely, lovely man, a friend who died so young and died really tragically, uh, Damon Quigley, and I'd love everybody to remember his name. He was a guy who I knew at uni, and he... he he used to say to me, you, you, should, you should be a journalist. We'd, we'd not known each other as youngsters. You mm -hmm. should be a journalist. He was working for something called, part-time for the Glasgow Sports Agency, uh, with David McKinney and Stuart Weir and with Graeme Spears as, as 
young kids do. And he said to me, look, come and try it out. He said, when the sports agencies send me to matches, they, they get an order of maybe four, five, even six match reports from different papers. Mm -hmm. that I'm the only guy who has to do it all. Right. It's called runners. So you... Um, my screen just went mental there. I hope watching that. It was like New Year. I'm going to Walt Disney, I'm not. It wasn't me, honest, I promise. It's the beauty of the images I'm conjuring up. Hi, it? <laughs> so it is. Um, so he said, Look, come and do some of them, sit beside me at the ground and write some of them for me. A runner meaning that you, you get an order maybe of 400 words and you right. send a chunk of 50, a chunk of 70, and blah, blah, blah. And it was for the the, the the quickest ones you had to do were for the you know the evening sports papers on a Saturday. I don't know. Did you grow up with a pink? I don't know. We we grew up with the green final in Aberdeen. The green final was the first place I was published. Aye, no. We, we, I think when we grew up, I, the, 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 I, I can just remember the kind of daily record and all that. Like no, that the, was the, the evening times in Glasgow had something called the pink, and it it would be out oh, about six. Aye, aye. No, six, I do remember on a I Saturday. So so aye. no no internet. No highlights. People used to go crazy for getting the... Listen to me, it, it was gospel, as, I, as again, as a youngster. So picking up the green final in my city, it was the pink in yours. That's right. You know, the pink in Embra. Anyway, long shot is, um, Damon let me do that, and I remember making an arse of one where I think... My memory tells me it was probably East Stirling versus Falkirk. And I got the goalies the wrong way around. <laughs> so I had one team shooting in the top corner, but by name I had them scoring against their own goal. <laughs> Despite that, I made it. Tom English was the sports head at Sunday Times then. He went, listen, you can have more uh, space, you can have features, you can have interviews, you can Aye. have your own witty column, blah, blah, blah. So I started to do that. I was doing little jobs for the Sunday Mirror. Um, and this is in, you know, 87, 88 sort of thing. And by early nineties, uh, I'm working away um, as a as a press officer in a in what was the Glasgow College of Technology, then became uh, the Glasgow Polytechnic and became Caledonia University. I was working in that office, but I, I was you know I was having a reasonable side wage writing weekly for the Sunday Times Scotland, and I went to the World Cup in 1994 with my wife, and my my brother, uh, just to spend a month knocking around that tournament. And um, did so, came back. I got I got really ill. Um, I got happy, and that, that, that was like a wee jolt because you're like, oh, fuck, that was you know that was not fun. Uh, of thought, course. Well, but like it's a wake up call. And I'd saved a pile of newspapers when I got on to Glasgow, which is where I lived at the time, from the coverage of particularly the, the Herald, the coverage of the World Cup, and I looked at it, and I suppose. Even then, I knew Jim Trainer was an arsehole. But anyway, I looked at all the coverage. <laughs> wow. Well done, lads. I'm not playing in the gallery. He is. <laughs> um, the, and I looked at I can do better than that. That just, just doesn't represent the World Cup I saw. It was rubbish. And I walked in the, the office where I worked, said to him, I'm leaving. I'm sorry, I'm quitting. And walked out. I won't go through all the... the, the you said you used the word luck, Sean. Mm -hmm. But luck tapped me on the show. Okay. I put myself in situations, I tried things, spoke to people, but unbelievable things, unbelievable things repeatedly happened. Mm -hmm. Nuts. Completely fucking nuts. <laughs> Until uh, the, the Daily Mail's opened in Scotland, they've offered me a, a job 
um, based on how I reported the arrival of Pierre Van Hoydonk at Celtic. They offered me a job as a contract as a rugby reporter. I'd, ne- I'd never, at that stage, I'd never played rugby at all. Well, I mean, I played it once. Right. Um, once at school? Never, n- no, not school. Again, it's another mental story. Pissed in Dublin, Hogmanay in Dublin. My mates all, they were mad, mad drinking, drug infested mates, all played <laughs> rugby. We're there at Hogmanay on the on Hogmanay, one of them's going around the club, but we're all celebrating the same. For a man shot tomorrow, you know, too many Guinnesses. I'm like, I'm playing. Never played yeah, before. I played in a game whereby there was a World Cup winner, an Australian World Cup winner, um, a, a winger who'd scored the most tries in any World Cup match. And there was <laughs> two British Lions in our team, Scots, both of them, Kiwi Scots, but Scots. And on the other side, Black Rock uh, was a very young Brian O'Driscoll who, who ran into him. I didn't know in rugby you could run into something, just put your hand in the face up, down like so. <laughs> I played in that game and hurt in places I didn't know you existed. Um, and anyway, so they gave me this job as a rugby reporter. I report it as football. So I report it about rows and stories. and It gets me going. I become the football reporter. I get a massive break. I'm in John Mark Bosman's house when the verdict comes down in his favour. That's a big scoop. With wow. the, the editor at the time said to me, I'm going down to London, I'm taking over, will you come? I said, yes. Within, I mean, within, show within, I don't know. Within a year and a half of, of having been given a part-time rugby contract at the Scottish Daily Mail, I'm the chief football writer, football correspondent for the Daily Mail in London. Dream job. And on it goes, and I get promoted, and a bad bad man comes in, eventually kicks me out, and I flip a coin, and my wife says, listen, let's go to Spain. Let's go to Spain. No job, no contacts, no money, very little Spanish language, and everything kind of, I work hard, but everything kind of falls into my lap. Bedroom arrives, bustling and reinvent themselves. And I surf that wave, Sean, and here I am today, nearly nearly a quarter of a century later after having come to Spain. It's it's an amazing story, it really is. And um, obviously I know you're kind of, well, I'm thinking you're kind of close to a lot of the Barcelona team that were obviously touted as one of the best teams in the world, if not the best. Um, and I know you wrote a book. Unfortunately, I've not had a chance to read it, but my big pal uh, Colin says it's one of the best books he's read. Um, so... Can you tell us a wee bit about how that came about? Because I know that was a big success in that book. Sean, it's really silly. Again, it's it's this is where you, you're literally just going to have to slap me because people that listen um, can work out whether it's coincidence or it's not. And we're all Celtic, so we're a bit mystic. About I believe things. in manifestation as well. Okay, I believe. Okay. It. So um, I'm 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 on a bus from Barcelona to Girona Airport to fly home uh, to see my family. And I'm sitting in a cramped bus trying to crash something out on the computer about how, in my opinion, on the Monday, this is for the, the Sunday Herald, and a, a friend of mine um, was a sports editor there, and he said, listen, what do you want to write this week? And I went, listen, it's, it's a travesty that Xavi is not going to be named Ballon d'Or winner on Monday. It'll be messy. But I want to write about Charlie. So I wrote this big, long piece. And he was generous. He said, give me 1,700 words. Give me 2,000 words, rather. Right. 
in that distance, you can really write, Sean. Mm-hmm. But preferably not on a fucking Ryanair bus to you're on an airplane. <laughs> so <laughs> crashing this thing out. Um, in fact, what had happened was they'd had a they'd had a feature with Colin Montgomery or not Sam Torrance's dad. It had been cancelled. Everything fell out, just completely dropped out, and they were like, "Give us more." So Aye. I really wrote an essay. You know, it was, it was honest. It was powerful. It was from the heart. And I knew Chavi reasonably well at that stage. And I went into print and I read it, you know, on the Sunday morning. I felt, okay, I've done it okay. That's, I feel quite, a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from two guys, um, one called Martin Craig and the other called Neil White. And they went, look, you don't know us. We were both journalists in Scotland while you've been away. We've, we believe that sport is beautiful. Sport is huge. Sport's like cinema or opera. And, and at the moment, every every reports it like it was like fucking hanging out the washer. <laughs> and they've put their, they've remortgaged their houses, they've given up their jobs, and they've started a publishing company in the middle of a, a fucking world financial meltdown. Sure. So I'm like, these are the boys for me. And they go, listen, we read your savvy article. They said, could you do that in a book form? I said, well, one, I don't know, because I've never written a book, but two, and let's just say to them, I'm not doing that. Everybody knows everything about Basura. Because I'd been living it. I'd been submerged in it. I've been thinking about it every minute of every working day, which is seven, seven days a week when you're a freelance. I literally said to them, no, not everybody in Britain. I've been on Revista on Sky. I've been explaining it on the radio. Writing it every week in the papers. There's nobody left that doesn't know everything that I know. And Aye. they were like, that's shite. You're doing it. So it took them several weeks to convince me. And I began to write it, and I found it hard. I think that producing a book, particularly if you've been trained in... Think about I don't know if you've ever thought about... I mean, the newspapers have never been held in less regard, I don't think, than they are now. And, and largely, I think that's... They've earned that. Mm-hmm. But uh, 14 years ago, it wasn't quite the case. And I grew up finding newspapers magical. Broadsheets, depth of writing, seriousness, intelligence, wit, beautiful pictures. Anyway, so it, when you when you work in the newspaper industry and it's your passion, you Sean, think about it. You come into you, if you're in the sports section, you come in maybe mm-hmm. twenty six pretty much blank pages every day. Mm-hmm. Now. Filling them is a challenge. Some people get scared of that. Some people get addicted to it. And I got addicted to it. We talked a lot about addictions in, in social sessions. Mm-hmm. And it can apply to anything. It literally becomes a high of endorphins and a need to keep repeating. And tucking one away doesn't give you any satisfaction. You, stop, you, you might have a pint to go home. And the next morning, the challenge is exactly <laughs> so, so, but But it's immediate. You get instant product, you get instant gratification. In a book, you don't. You're sitting there researching, interviewing, planning the structure, writing the chapters, rewriting it. It's long. It might be, I don't know how many words the book was in the end. 150,000, I don't know. Uh, and and it takes months. It's like, you know, giving birth to a baby elephant. It's a gestation <laughs> period where you're like, will this ever fucking end? I, I, did, I didn't enjoy it and then it came out and you've reminded me I haven't thought about this book for many years now 
but what people said about it, what people felt about it, uh, the couple of awards that it won, um, they were they were stunning and they were moving and it surprised me and I'll tie up by saying when it won Book of the Year, I forget which year it was, it was held at Lord's Cricket Ground and for my sins I love my cricket show. So it's held at Lord's, the awards ceremony and we go down, myself and my family, Neil and Martin and their, their partners and you're sitting there in a huge gala surrounding and eventually they give Barca the, the, the Book of the Year. And it's Terry Venables giving it out. And I'd known Terry on and off for quite a number of years prior to that. And I'd really liked him. And I'd right. found him inspirational and, and a wee bit idiosyncratic, a wee bit fly, which I quite <laughs> like, but funny. Loved to sing song, loved a wee glass, but, but very successful. And somebody who'd done things in football that I really admired. So to, to finish that little trajectory, and to be standing up on a stage, to be confused, I, you know, it was an overwhelming experience. Didn't handle it particularly well because I just went into a little, uh, I shrunk a little bit and nicked around for about 20 minutes and then went home. Okay. I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite take it in. But that moment of Terry doing a little speech about the book and handing the award and me doing a little speech, that, that was magical. And, and that's how that book started and, well, it didn't end because my friend Duncan McMath eventually said he was in his honeymoon and he was reading the book for the first time. He said, we've got to make a film out of this, but that's another story. And we did. Oh, they, I know. It's, and that's like, it's my, my pal actually says to me, I can't believe you've not read that. He says it's like, and, and then my big pal Andy and the, and what the day said, it was amazing book as well. And I'm like, right, that's it. I need to get on this, man. I need to go on this book now. I need to, like, I'm, so I'm definitely going to read it, Graham. Do, do, but, do me a turn and say to both <laughs> of them, look, show them the smiling picture. Just say thank you. <laughs> well, listen, there's more than that, by the way. When I told, I, could, I told people you were coming on, everybody, everybody was rolling about it, Graham. Everybody. <laughs> Right, what are you giving it more airspace to that idiot for? Not at all, man. So if I just, even like listening to you, like talking about the book and even talking about how that that awareness that you can see, even through like the the lens of a journalist, um, to talk about addiction and see how that, manifests and a kind of work as well is quite amazing as well Graham that you're aware of that there's a lot of people out there I think that have got this idea of addiction that it's only drugs drink gamble and stuff like that um but to see that in you and and have that awareness it's quite amazing to see that um you can see that like connection I don't well I don't want to trample on the flower bed and, and maybe speak too much and sound like a jackass but um, I think all of us have gratification needs and I think when you mingle into that many of us have, have we question ourselves about what makes us proud of ourselves or what clears the voices out of our head or what keeps the world at bay there's any number of reasons that something can become addictive and like no matter how fortunate you've been in birth by either your personality or your heritage or your talents or where you're born or the, 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 the difference it makes of the colour of your skin or 
no matter all of what well, I think almost everybody, almost without exception, has the same thoughts and fears and needs. It's just that some are born immune, okay, in trouble because of them. And there's any number of things that can either feel like a, a feel like a medicine or can feel like a way of hiding or ignoring things. Definitely. So we, I think we all yearn for a high, just like in the mm -hmm. old days. Writers in the 40s and 50s used to word that, use the word gay. Mm -hmm. It mean, literally meaning merry. Hi, happy. And full, full of beans. And, and it became, for a quite understandable reason, it became, you know, adopted for other, um, other descriptions. And high is a word... <laughs> Getting high and getting giddy, when I was growing up, were were good things. They were probably natural highs, when I, at least when I was growing up. But you you could even get told if you were just like getting a bit high and a bit giddy, you had to calm down, you had to wise up. And I think as a tributary from what I said there to how we all behave over who are our social contacts, who are our friends, what do we eat? When do we eat? Why do we eat? What What does running do? Running becomes mm -hmm. an addiction too. And you, endorphins become an addiction. There are all sorts of things. And they don't all necessarily need to be in any way negative or damaging. Mm -hmm. But if you're addicted to something, anything, one, you need to recognize it. Two, you need to try to understand why. And three, I think you have to do a little bit of a... Um, have an investigative thought and say, well, what would happen if this you know, took over or I, or I couldn't stop? Whatever it is, literally whatever mm -hmm. it is, from the, from the end of the spectrum where we already know it's damaging to somewhere where it seems, you know, you're, you're, you're literally over-addicted to eating healthily or drinking too much water or running seven times a week. There'll be threats mm -hmm. there too, so... No, definitely, and I, I don't. I, I don't think I could put it better in the way that that, that you said it. Um, but as it's just interesting how um, when we we do social sessions and we speak to so many different people from different worlds, um, and it's similar. And obviously, I would take me myself, Graham. I take it back. The bad addictions, if you want to call it, all stem from poverty. Do you know what I mean? And we we, we say that quite a lot on this uh, show about poverty and stuff, but. Um, so I'm going to just take you yourself, Graham, just to kind of like you've obviously. When I was researching some of your interviews and stuff like that, I mean, some of the people you've interviewed is absolutely uh, outrageous. Um, I watched actually the Michael Loudup one, which I thought was great, um, and I was just interested to know who who is your who has been your favourite interview. Like, you, I know that's going to be an impossible question, but. Look, it's, I suppose it depends on the moment. It, the, the, the joy it gave me the first time I interviewed Charlie Nicholas when he was at Aberdeen and I was working for Hospital Radio Paisley and I don't know how we communicated in those days. I literally, because there was no email, no, t no mobile phones. So how no. the I managed to communicate to Aberdeen? I'd like an interview with Charlie Nicholas. They said yes. I went up to Aberdeen, my club, I was living in Glasgow at the time, and Charlie walks into the lobby of Petodri. I've never met him before. And he's fully in his Bono gear. 
it's it's a big <laughs> long leather trench coat and the, and the leather cowboy hat. And he just walks out. He goes, "All right, guy." <laughs> and all I've got is a poxy wee tape recorder. And I take Charlie Nick and I play it out on hospital radio Paisley for the patients. Uh-huh. Green Nick and Paisley and East Southern General in there. There's a hospital in Rivers Road. Anyway, if you if you think about the the, the crude nature of that, and, and I'm sure we didn't speak about anything earth shattering. I mean, Sean, that lives in a memory. Um, of course. I remember, for example, um, she was, I'm losing it, even just talking about it now. You'll laugh at me, but we, we were due to be interviewing Jodie Morris at um, Chelsea. Whew. What an impact this has had. Uh, talking about it, and by fluke, and we were driving down um, through my two editors, Neil and Martin, and I, and we were we were driving down through ridiculous traffic to try and get to Cobham, their training ground. And to this day, I'm still angry. Some fucking idiot, if you excuse the language. I don't know what your rules are. In the podcast. Hey, no, no, excuse you want. Fucking idiot from BBC Radio in Belfast. Um, phoned up, said, I agree, man. Yeah, yeah, listen, I just want to talk to you about Johan Cruyff and, and your memories of him and blah blah blah. And he rabbits on for about 40 seconds, and I'm like, What's that a bit odd? And he's like, And so, what do you and I'm like, Um, you've what's why are you? He said, Uh, Christ died. So, what we want to know is like, and I was like, Let me stop you right there, you fucking useless cunt. How dare you? Phone mm-hmm. me and not tell me, first of all, the greatest man football's ever known has died. I've rec- I'm phoning you because I know you knew him, and I was fucking furious that that we, in, in theory, that the, the BBC is supposed to be a blue ribbon. And so I didn't have the courtesy to think, well, the person I'm phoning might feel something about this. It was like, that is lack of humanity. The, the perfect phrase, Sean. All, all, all he was like, is, how I can, how can I convert this phone number into something that will do me good as I tap out some? Anyway, I, I swore and I lost. I hung up on it, and it really affected me. And I'm, I'm sort of quite emotional now talking about it, was because it's come out of the blue. And I've got a photo here behind me um, where, just by total fluke, I conducted that. He was my hero since seventy seventy one. And I've got a photo of me conducting the last hour interview that he did. And um, we'd, we'd all thought he was coming through it because he said, you know, I, about two months before he died, he said, you know, we're, we're at halftime in the, in the battle and the second half's looking good. And then suddenly he was dead. And um, good. we went and we, 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 went, we sat down. It was the podcast that I did, big interview. Sat down with Jody Morris. And at the end of it, it was a very engrossing, very interesting interview. And at the end of it, I said, Jodie, it's really affected me. We've talked a lot about Barcelona in this interview. It's really affected me that, <laughs> that, that Johan Cruyff has died. And he, and I, I said to him, um, <laughs> what can you say to, to me about him just to, to cheer me up? And he, he said to me, just, just be thankful that we saw him. Be thankful for him. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Whoa, yeah, that's a great sentiment." And um, 
Why you really take me by surprise, there, Sean? So that would. Sorry, Graham. I'm not. If obviously, if you're it's like, come I, out if, of the blue, I, it's come absolutely out of the blue to me. Um, I just adored him so much. Anyway, there'd be that the the, the Bosman interview where I'm again by fluke. I, I, I'm sitting in his parents' room. He's fought the system. He's gone out on his own. He's been frozen out of football. Very few people have supported him. He's gone broke. He's at age. He's become an alcoholic. He's had to sell all his belongings and move in with his parents. And I happened to go and try to tell his human story on, on by fluke the day that the European Court rules that he's... And it, was a, it wasn't just great timing. He gave a, an unbelievable interview. That stands out in them all. One of the most remarkable I've ever been part of was with Peter Schmeichel in Copenhagen one winter afternoon up in the loft of a of a big sort of apartment hotel and he talked about he talked about fear. He talked about when you know Peter Schmeichel, this big, booming, successful, daunting, arrogant, loud, brilliant goalkeeper, big person, big personality, mm-hmm. talked about the first time I ever he ever played a Champions League match that mattered for Brumby against Porto. He was so scared that he started praying that the the bus would break down, or there'd well, be some sort of you know I don't know if he said there was a if there'd be a fire in the dressing room so they couldn't go in or but he prayed that they wouldn't make it so he didn't have to face the thing that and it, then he said and he, he went into detail about how petrified he was and mm-hmm. what thoughts those that that brought him and then he said. And this this ran through with me from when I was a kid. He said that he got to the stadium. He talked to himself and he said, so he's telling me this in his eyes, going, Peter, this is the thing you've trained for all your life. This is stupid. I'm not, I can't. And this is where you want it to be. Gave himself such a row. And then he looked at me and he went, and I never felt that way again. (laughs) And I remember doing a version of that to myself when I was 13, 14, a little bit cheeky about being picked on, being, being bullied, being punched in the school playground by bigger fellas. And I remember going, fuck, mm-hmm. I'm taking the licks that are coming. I'm not changing. And I wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't in any way doing anything out of the ordinary. It wasn't in any way something special. But I remember that conversation with myself <laughs> Are you giving you such an impressive guy? I'm going to give, <laughs> no, I'm going to give I... you the laugh. In the, in the, in the mid seventies, around about the seventy four World Cup, Jackie Stewart and Ronnie Corbett made the wee tartan Tammy with a bubble on top. That's quite, right, aye, aye. quite pop. <laughs> so in fact, it's again I won my first football trophy. Um, the night that Bayern Munich beat Sonetian at Hamden, which must have been 75 or 76. Anyway, the next day when I'm in the garden with my brothers, there's a picture of my two brothers and me with my tracksuit and my talent. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember cycling around the neighbourhood in the summer wearing that tartan tan. And the big lads going, if we should, sort of chasing me and going, oh, we're going to fucking have you. And I was like, uh, I don't think I even did that, but I was like, 
Maybe we waved in the air. Like, <laughs> waved the, let, them, let them come. I thought, Aye. I knew they didn't have a choice about either you buckle down and become a bit more cardboard or a bit more normal, or you, or you, you don't. And mm-hmm. so Michael's words resonated with me. And I better stop now because I'll chunt it on forever and ever. But I tell you, I'll finish on. There's, there's, there's 22 more that I could immediately say. No, I know. Candidates, but re- relatively recently, we went up to see Sven Joran Eriksson in Sunne up in Sweden where he lives on the, on the banks of Lake Fricken. And it was a magical interview. I didn't expect it to be this good. But he, he, he said such incredible things about Mancini and Viali and Beckham that it was an enchanting interview. And at the end of it, he was like, uh, let's go out and I'll show you my back garden. And we're like, okay, fair enough, fair enough. So we go out. It's a beautiful giant house. And it literally rolls down a garden into the loch. And uh, he said, I, I'd like to take you to my summer house, which is just down there. But I can't at the moment. Okay, why not? And he said, well, the local pastor came to me and said that, and, and the sun is up right up the top, man, right up in fucking Arctic. It's like, it's like Thurzel, you know? Aye. And he goes, the local pastor came to me and said that there's some Afghanis who've come through the Swedish uh, asylum system. And, and so they've been allowed into the country legitimately but there's no mm-hmm. ruling yet about whether they can stay or or official cards so that they can work so he said they've got nothing the local pastor said they've got no food got no work they're, they're safe mm-hmm. and the local pastor says fine will you take them in so he did he took in i think it was a family of four wow and he put them in his little summer house mm-hmm. and fed them and kept them safe and it's little things like that where people, excuse me, Sean, where people let you into their house, they're willing to talk about their careers, and they just open up and tell you things that make you either understand, it doesn't have to be always make, make you like them more, but makes you understand them more, makes them makes you view them in a different light. Mm-hmm. And those are the interviews across my uh, life that I, I probably have treasured the most, I think. I think even just tapping into any one of them, like obviously, like just talking about Bosman, that is like me for me. Bosman is just a name for a signing. Yeah. So it's amazing to actually hear the story even a wee bit because I didn't know that Graham. I knew he was a player who blah blah. blah. I didn't know the troubles he went through. Well, well, um, sure. I mean, if you, think, <clears throat> I mean, I'll be brief about this, but if you think what he suffered. It literally was at the time when your contract came to an end. The club that you'd been playing for could hold on to you, even though there was no contract. It Aye. was a, it was a slavery, such an emotive, evocative word. But mm-hmm. you were a prisoner. You were a prisoner, definitely. And his lawyer, he and his lawyer were like, "Okay, we're going for this," and he he knew. That the, the, the giant forces, it's like the Russell Crowe uh, film about um, the tobacco industry, which I, I don't know if it's called The Insider or what's called, but it's like one of the most powerful films you, films you can ever imagine. Bosman kind of knows that he'll be chased, that he'll be excluded, that the, the whole weight of the system will come crashing down upon him. And it, it does, and, and the unions don't, don't support him, don't, don't 
don't even really care, Sean. And that's why I went. I went because I want to understand what his mind was like, what he, the suffering was like, whether he felt it had been worth it, with no clue mm-hmm. that that might, no clue that he would win, really. Aye. No clue that that would be the day. And he's sitting there and it's his, he says, put off folks as well, because you, I mean, they weren't, they weren't like decrepit, but they were old. Aye. Because all that, he, was, he was already in that stage in his mid-30s. And he was a bit bloated. He didn't look like he didn't look like a top athlete because he, his misery had led him to drink. Aye. Um, and they were there, and the phone starts ringing off the hook in, in the other room. And his mum comes through and says, after it, you know, it rings and rings and rings, and he goes ignore it, and she goes eventually because it rings and rings and rings. And it's the world's media, the world's media trying to get Aye. him. She comes through and goes, "That's Agence France Press." You. The interim verdict is in. You've won. They want to speak to you, and she's bowled over as a mum. Ah, of course. And he goes, he goes, no, 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 because he said to me, I phoned him from Brussels Airport when I landed. He didn't know I was coming. I landed Aye. in Brussels Airport, phoned him up with my my rubbish French. She didn't speak English. Aye. He said, listen, I need to come and see you. He's like, no, fuck off. Like, no, 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 we have. Listen, I'm a, I'm a young journalist. I need to, I, I believe in you. And he's like, well, how much money have you got? And I said, I've got 32 quid in French francs. He said, well, get on a train to Liège and bring that and you're in. <laughs> so, and at a stage when his mum comes through four or five hours later and said, you, you've won. He's like, tell him all the fuck off. He said, nobody wanted to know me. He said, I'm speaking to this fella. I'm going to finish with this fella. I'm going to do it right. Then maybe I'll speak to them all. And again, I was like, Fuck my old sea boots! It was extraordinary. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's these, it's these type of things where you, you, you do. We, I mean, we've spoke about synchronicity. We talk about kind of manifestation. We've spoke about this, but these type of things tend to come in and fall into people that are there. Um, maybe that are not as pro system as some of the other ones, and some of the people that actually do really care, Graham. And I think it stands out for. You could have easily said my favourite interview was messy, it was this one, it was, like you did not, you chose um, the ones that, that that meant the most to you, that, that, that actually meant something. Um, and even talk about Peter Schmeichel, it's just amazing to hear, because obviously I, like guys like us don't see that, we, we only see that the facade that is football, we only see that um, powerful image um, and we'll talk about a wee bit about Saudi Arabia and stuff uh, soon, but you just see that you don't see, you don't think these players are real. And I spoke to Andy McLaren, and Andy was obviously a, he's a great friend of mine. He's a great guy, um, and it's like one of the ones where Andy was kind of similar, but you just don't see it as is is like even the stuff that Andy got shouted at him, stuff like that for fans and stuff, and you don't see the effect that it's having, and you think these players are just there. In a way, you don't see them as human, Graham. If that makes sense, I think no, no. It's it's a it's a subject of mine that if you'd asked me at the beginning of my career about that, I I, I wouldn't have seen the tendency. But across, because I've been doing this for a long time now, and because I'm a person that things make me angry quickly, you know, I come from a family where one of my parents was very politically active and believed in causes and either by 
by genetics or by example, that's been passed on to me. And uh, the world could be doing more of that. The new game. One of my brothers is a union um, executive, and he passionately believes in workers' rights and justice, and and and, and does something about it. So that that's um, why it's in my mind, Sean. But you, so you talked about. Because I started thinking of my family there, and my, and my late mum. I've lost my train. Uh, <laughs> you, you were talking about um, what, why did why did I go into politics and causes? What did you ask me? No, I was basically just saying that so you could have chose so many interviews, but you you chose the ones that meant the most to you, um, and obviously that just speaks volumes of the type of person you're. And you have went up against the system a few times. Um, and, and, and testament to yourself that you're actually... I think, yeah, but I mean, you, there's two sides to every coin, Sean. Nobody listening to this needs to ignore the fact that I'm a fucking pain in the arse. <laughs> Obstinate, you know, if there's a if there's a tide, I'll swim against it, you know. It's quite hard work being around me. <laughs> but the one thing I've tried really hard not to be is, is, is sheep-like. I don't, right. I don't pick positions to be contrary, but when I see something, you talked about footballers as, as products, that's what got me going. Over this career, I've watched, you, you, the football I started going to as a boy and then as a fan, fans didn't behave like that. Footballers no. were, were less distanced from us because of there wasn't really a superstar culture mm -hmm. um, they weren't marketing objects to the same extent as they are now and that's different from the fact that they used to advertise stuff but they weren't a, a marketing vehicle where everything they do is sold their Aye. image is buffed up and, and, and to some extent the football industry Footballers and their agents have unknowingly created part of this problem, maybe about mm -hmm. 25%. But I think the vast part of the problem is that the football media, the sports, the entertainment industry, whereby it's, it's a voracious, uncaring, unthinking coal engine on a steam train where it just mm -hmm. needs coal fucking shoveled into it again and again and again and again and again and again mm. and therefore there are very few people who make their livelihoods or make money out of the football industry who really give two fucks about Aye. players being deliberately and also subconsciously portrayed as kind of toys you take out of a cupboard to either venerate or abuse every three mm -hmm. days. And it's only relatively recently that responsible broadcasters and journalists have started to say mental well-being, um, feelings of worthlessness, um, footballer addictions. When, when, I was, when I was midway from between, uh, I was a a young journalist to beginning to be a successful journalist. I think George Best was still regarded as something of a 
circus freak. It was right. funny that you could mm-hmm. see George at a certain pub in Chelsea there by the fire station. And it was funny that you could go in there and buy him a goldfish bowl of whatever it was, gin and tonic or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was, it, you know, I'm talking in inverted commas, it was funny. Aye, aye. No, I know what you mean. He'd be a bit pissed on Wogan. Now, everybody's alarm bells would be ringing immediately and some fucking idiot in the, the mail online would be shitting on them, you know. But for a long, long time, the, the way in which being in the public eye, the way in which being injured, the way in which being sore all the time, the way in which you get older and you fear the thing that makes you well, the thing that makes you strong, i.e. the jokes in the, in the dressing room, the fact you can outdo mm-hmm. other people, the fact you might win on a Saturday, the veneration from the crowds. Nobody really thought about the erosion that that had on people's self-estimation or their self-confidence. And I'll close up this bit again by saying that a guy who... I think Chris Waddle was maybe the... Sean, maybe the third or fourth big interview that we did, long taped interviews that mm-hmm. went on for eight years. And I would go usually to people's homes or look at a conference room or go to their training ground. We went to Chris's home. And it was a magical interview, upstairs in his loft, records everywhere, posters of music everywhere, shirts he'd worn in frames everywhere, two little statuettes of Laurel and Hardy, who I love, I think are the Mm. funniest thing ever still. (laughs) And I thought, well, I'm going to like this fella. And it was an hour and 20 minutes of really good anecdotes. But at the end, he talked about when he was at Sheffield Wednesday, Less so Newcastle because the seats weren't the same. He said, Hillsborough had a lot of those old wooden seats that were on springs. Aye. He says, as a winger, I'd love to get people off their chairs onto their feet. And he said, you could hear it. You could hear the slap, mm-hmm. slap, 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 slap of wooden seats bouncing back up against their wooden back as people got off their chairs. Go, Look what he's done there. Aye. And then he said, and then he said, and all of a sudden, then, I didn't hear that sound anymore. And fuck me, that was a mournful, sad phrase, because it told you so and everything. It was no. like, he, he knew he wasn't getting anybody off their seats anymore. Think about, right. you know, what... what I know. What that, that adrenaline, endorphins, adulation, self-worth does to you, builds you up there, and, and this thing about... Now they're all treated like products, and at least you've re- you've introduced in social sessions a debate that I hear a, a little bit now compared to before, where people say they're not they're human beings, they're not products, they're not just toys you take out and and then you can shout any old shit at them, or you don't care right. about their their personality or their their worries or their fears. It, being good at sport and being mega rich takes away almost none of the problems that you or I or Peter or whoever's watching this face, some of mm-hmm. them, but usually it's like the, the the penny thing at the arcade where it's just replaced by a whole new set of them, Aye. I think. I think, see, before I started social sessions, obviously you weren't privy to different things, but you hear things now and the addiction rate, with football players, gambling and, uh, like, drink, even drinking and stuff. I mean, it's not as bad, and I don't think, as when Andy was playing and stuff, and maybe when uh, we were a bit younger, Graham, but 
it's amazing to just think that this is all going on in that world because you don't see it. We we watch like you play FIFA, you um, maybe play championship championship manager. You play these games. You, you watch a game on the Sunday. You watch the Champions League final. We don't get to see what you're seeing. You don't. You you're getting to see the human the human side of. Uh, probably people that like Ronaldo, Messi, and that are probably the kind of first football players that I've seen that are kind of like godlike to kids. Um, and the way that that I mean, obviously there's been players before that Maradona, but I mean marketing. Uh, like I, I seen. I don't know how you feel about this, but I seen Ronaldo obviously at Saudi Arabia, and I I watched the Tyson Fury fight with Ngannou, and. Uh, you could tell Ronaldo was just there because he was told to be there. I don't really think he was, he was sitting beside Conor McGregor and he was sitting, it was just like, I was like, what is happening here? Like, that, is this the way this, this sport's going to go now? And then, obviously, they're coming out of the, the football. I'm really worried that they're going to try and get teams into the Champions League and stuff. Like, I don't know how you, if you, I don't, you maybe know a bit more of that, Graham, but... Man, it's, it's such a subject. You know, you've hit me where I live because when 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 Qatar were awarded the World Cup, I was absolutely categorical that the process had been bent. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, I, I, I won't go to that World Cup. But I'm a freelance, and by the time it came round, I was offered employment. And there's no, there's no question that Qatar's society isn't as extreme as Saudi Arabia. There's no question that Qatar as a society are petrified of becoming more liberal because Mm -hmm. of already warlike relations between them and Saudi Arabia and Arabic. Nonetheless, I feel ashamed that I went and worked because financially I really needed to. It wasn't augmenting mm-hmm. money. It was, this is, my living is not a living where you get wealthy. Mm-hmm. Being a freelance piecemeal journalist isn't. <clears throat> and I think that directly relates to your question about Saudi Arabia, and my knowledge of it, my views about it. I, I, f- I find it impossible to, in any way, reconcile myself with how they, what they, believe a society should be made up of. Uh, the way in which they murdered um, Gashogi, the journalist, who was a, simply a, a critic of their actions. Um, whenever you react to something like this, you, you, you have to be extremely careful not to be a, you know, a white empiricist. No. Other people shouldn't be doing this because that's bullshit. That's utter bullshit. And for example, if Qatar want to expand their football prowess, if Qatar want to import people that will teach them, so I've been out there a couple of times, once or twice to interview Chavi, once mm-hmm. for the World Cup. I remember Chavi telling me out there when he was coaching out there there was such a problem with childhood obesity because families were. Qatari families, not the immigrant workers that service them, because Qatari mm-hmm. families were large and very rich. They all had two, three car families. They overate and kids were growing up obese. Mm-hmm. And Chavi said, Look, 
it's part of what's going on here at Aspire Academy that they want to re-educate children about exercise and the and the brutal fifty degree heat affects that. So there's there's many things to argue about. That. Irrespective of how they run their society, the idea that they want to become proficient at club and international level in football and they want to re-educate their youth boys and girls as to what the benefits of act an active lifestyle is, I think that's mm-hmm. all fantastic. But they haven't Definitely. reached a point under any circumstances where they merited merited hosting a World Cup. In terms of the stadium, in terms of the entertainment, they did quite a job good job, but they they, they stole it and they and they, they put it in the middle of the season, having said that they wouldn't. That's the right. kind of lying and cheating that decent ordinary people, whether it's footballers, journalists or fans, sponsors, you need to speak up against and say, well, this can happen, this shouldn't happen, we need to learn from this, that's wrong. And we've got that in front of us with Saudi Arabia where in in terms of the general public or, or those who view football sport, I don't feel alone. Mm-hmm. But in terms of almost anybody I meet in professional sport, almost anybody, their concept is, well, the money's there. Mm-hmm. Why not? If it's not me or if it's not, not us, everybody else will do it. We just reached a point with Saudi Arabia where I want to de-participate. You know, I don't want to have to, um, if I can avoid it, do interviews at Newcastle. I, I don't watch them. <laughs> Big deal, like anybody's going to notice. I don't watch them on the TV if they're playing at home. Um, I wouldn't. The Spanish Super Cup is played out in Saudi Arabia and the new format has been divinely successful. It's more football, it's more pressure, it's more disregard for footballers' need for rest. But it's it's working a treat. It's absolutely brilliant entertainment. Right. But if somebody asked me, would you go out and cover it? I'd say, no, I won't. I just, mm-hmm. no, thank you. Are the people, I'm, I don't have the power or the influence to stop things like that happening. But my f- small baby step, Sean, is to, is to not participate. I think that's um, an ama- I think that's a testament to yourself again, Graham. I think um, it's an amazing outlook to have, and I think if more people, it's listen, even myself, I'm I'm really quite outspoken, and I, I, you do find just you, you need to find yourself um, watching what you're saying and watching what you're saying when you're actually. Ugh, I mean, you're some. I mean, some places we're watching a genocide happening, and we're just kind of sitting Correct. back and. And you're and you're you're not, you're actually feeling a bit scared to actually speak about a genocide, which is I I don't know where it comes from. I mean, it's like um, and even too much. Some of my own family that I speak to are really not interested, and they'll say to me, "Sean, you're grown about this, and why do it's just so negative?" And I'm like, "But I can't see. I can't. I can't not see what I'm seeing." I saw a statement today, um, Sean, to back you up, which was just to briefly. Somebody wrote today. If you if you're tired if you're sick and tired of hearing me going on about the slaughter in Gaza, think about how they feel about it themselves. Mm. <laughs> sick and tired of being shot and bombed and tortured and starved and frozen. It's, I know. There's just, 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 
it's just no way around that debate. And I think when you see, because um, I, I had a, I, I, my cousins that call me conspiracy theorists, blah blah, all that kind of stuff. But um, they, we have a wee chat, and I said, and I said, like maybe six months ago, I said Saudi Arabia will come into this war at some point. I don't know how, I don't know why, but they will come into it, um, and they will be kind of American back. And it does seem to be happening. And I think um, what I see is this look over here, look what we've got, we're giving you all this great entertainment, but don't look at what we're doing here. I think that's a smart, that's a smart, educated worldview based on how tyrants have behaved over your and my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and I, I mean, obviously it's, I'll try and change it, right, I'll change the subject so we're going to something a wee bit more positive, Graham, right, because what I was really like, I'd really like to talk about is um, the cultural difference between Scotland and Spain. Obviously, Scotland's got this culture of kind of drink, drugs, party hard. Spain, I know um, from kind of whatever, like being in prison for so long, has got some serious, serious organised crime. Um, but they don't seem to have that. Um, kind of bottom, like I, I don't know that kind of bottom level addiction problem with kind of drugs and stuff. I don't know. You might be, you might be able to say that that I'm talking rubbish here, Graham. But there seems to be a kind of cultural difference where the Spanish kids have got a wee bit more chance of going to a cat football academies, going to kind of, I don't know. Maybe yeah, obviously I'll, I'll open the question it's, up to you. It's Sean. It's a, it's a, it's a, an hour and a half long podcast in itself, and I can only paint little dark corners in order to, to try and make an answer. I was I was in a car the other day with a, a, a brilliant footballer that um, I really, really like called Steve Archibald. Aye. Who, who did, you know, started at Clyde as a, and he was a Rolls-Royce mechanic, started at Clyde, came to Aberdeen, went to Spurs, went to Barcelona, eventually for Espanyol and Hibs and Blackburn and it's not the guy who played for Airdrie, is it? But he caught him beyond Airdrie, I correct. And Steve was Steve was a world oh class striker. Um, won the title in Spain, got to a European Cup final, uh, won I think at least one, maybe two European finals with Spurs. Won the FA Cup twice with Spurs. Brilliant striker, I mean, genuinely brilliant striker. Went to minimum two World Cups with Scotland. Anyway, long and short is I've known him since. 1999, and he lives around the corner and we're friends. We were driving across Barcelona the other day and um, we were talking about um, a beer in the morning. And I said to him, more or less, when I was living really strong, really hard, if, if, I'd, had, if I'd had a right big night and two hours <laughs> I'd start in the morning with a, a black coffee and a beer. I wouldn't touch anything else for the rest of the day or maybe the rest of the week, but that would that would see me square. <laughs> but if I'm just in an ordinary day of whatever kind and somebody suggests having a beer in the morning, then I'll want 15 or 16 more. It's as simple as that. <laughs> but Stephen, Stephen and I were agreeing that it's a cultural shock out here, that it's really normal for ordinary workers to have a beer in the morning, like ordinary workers. So I was saying to him that when I used to go to a particular gym across the street from me, um, 
you, I take my younger daughter to nursery. I go in and do a gym session. I come out, be about half nine, and there'd be a, a guy in a suit and tie, also haven't been at the gym, and he probably he looked like he was going to work in a bank or an insurance company or something. He was having a little canya. Right. And I'm thinking, fuck, I, I don't know many Scots. If you offer them a beer in the morning, they're not. Come no, on, fellas, this is going to be a <laughs> no, day let's go. <laughs> At least the ones I'm, the ones I mix with this. <laughs> and Steve is like, he came over here in '84, and he said the culture really jocks you. He said it's, it's totally normal, and you even see some people like ordinary folk who wouldn't, wouldn't understand our concept of alcohol. They they Aye. they'll eat late at night because the, the society is a late night society for kids and adults. And they won't have, they'll have a coffee for breakfast and nothing else. And breakfast will be had because they ate late, maybe about half past 11. And it'll be a little right. donut and a coffee. But a lot of them will have a little, maybe just a little shot of brandy as well. Mm. That's mad, isn't it? I'm using that as a tiny wee answer to the fact <laughs> that you already know from your travels and from just understanding the continental lifestyle that in many of the European continent countries, they just simply think about drinking completely different from us. It's not about how often can you get away with it, how much you need it down. It's not It's not mm-hmm. most about, fuck me, I drank him out under the table last <laughs> night, or can I get a fly three at lunchtime? They, they'll, apart from the obvious thing about the majority of the Mediterranean countries will, will like the, the, the Spaniards, the, the top athletes who, who spend their working careers not drinking will be outraged if they can't have a glass of wine with lunch and a glass of wine with dinner. So just be like, be like, what kind of heathen situation is this? <laughs> Whereas we're like, oh, I bottle tonight, I bottle and a half maybe. <laughs> I don't know exactly where it comes from, but I think it talks a little bit to what you Talk, you mentioned about behaviours and choices and it has to be a big Joseph's Technicolor dream coat, multicolored answer because the climate's different so people spend more time outdoors mm-hmm. so people tend to be fitter they eat a lot more fish, they eat a lot more they, they, olive oils are part of the diet they, 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 they tend to think healthier, live healthier they get a lot of vitamin D because the temperature's better, the sun is better they a lot of fresh air, and, and that just radically changes what I've realised is that, you know, particularly in the west of Scotland, east of Scotland might be cold, but there's more blue, there's more light, there's more blue sky throughout Aye. the year. I did live quite hard, and I did value a, a pub and a pint when I lived in Scotland, but till the west of Scotland. But living with that grey carpet over your head, living when it's mochy and wet all the time, I don't like it, mm-hmm. but it actively damages you. That people talk about my life here, and I say to them, honestly, it's not the sunshine that's the that's the heat. It's the light. Mm-hmm. It's the light. When you open your windows in the morning, when you go outside, when you're meant, you don't even mentally bet on what the next fifteen days or sixty days are going to be like. It's Aye. a subconscious <laughs> feeling. You know. Aye. But 80, 85% of them will be blue skies and light, irrespective of the temperature. And that mm-hmm. is just like 
fucking nutrition for the soul. And and all these things come into play about, you talked about, I've, I've not been in jail. I haven't seen mm-hmm. the people that you have seen. But I can confirm that a lot of the coasts and lots of the big cities are consumed by organized, properly organized crime and 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 the, the, this this misnomer about Costa del Sol being the Costa del Crime because prior to extradition treaties, you know, proper British criminals used to go and hide out. They and still do, and still do. Right. <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't <clears throat> even sniff at what um, certain Eastern Bloc countries have imposed there. And there's there's South American mafias mm-hmm. that, that dominate in certain areas of Barcelona or Madrid and and so on and so on and so on and so on. There's there's I think organized crime is homogenized now. There's very, there are very few places where it, 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 it doesn't impact because it can make money and spread misery. So it, 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 these things do exist in, in Spain, but you, you got to the heart of it, and I'm not a sociologist, so I can't define it broadly. And there's one last thing I'll chuck in because you talked about society. When I came here, it was ultra true. And to a certain extent, it's still true. The family unit, generally mm-hmm. stays together here better longer education is passed down through the generations in that grandparents are still venerated here they're still important they're usually still alive they're usually right. not you know smoking and drinking themselves in an early grave and shriveled and, and stupid right. and and therefore you, the number of footballers I interview who've gone on to be successful who say, my grandfather taught me, or my grandmother said, or if, if my grandfather heard me saying, or he told me I must, they, they trot that out as as biblical truths. Aye. And it used to be, they came out on a lot older than you, um, it used to, I think it used to be the case in Scotland that, that that was true, and I think it's got smashed by the breaking up of family units, and it's got smashed partly by the way the Tories killed communities deliberately mm-hmm. in order to, take the, to make us more subservient and supplicant and cooler. Um, Definitely. So, there you go. Fuck them. No, um, it's, 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 it's just obviously when you go to Spain and you, you, you we obviously go, you go to holiday destinations, but I was in Madrid. I was lucky enough to go to the Real Madrid Celtic game and um, there was really like the police. Obviously, there was a massive police force, which was quite scary at the stadium. Um, and I couldn't believe how kind of volatile oh, they, they get, actually they were. The police, but yeah, they get tucked in. Oh, definitely, <laughs> they were like kick, just kicking people. Right? I mean, it was, it was mental, but um, it was it's as it it's a big difference. Um, but it's interesting. It's just even to see how you've lived out there and you still aren't able to kind of even start to put your finger on where, obviously with the family unit, you, you can touch on stuff, but you, you've been out there a lot, that long and you still, and I think that's the problem is like Scotland is a kind of paradox and where there's so much um, <clears throat> going on and stuff with so like addiction and uh, mental health problems and criminal activity, whatever, but it's, it's in, it's as if it's ingrained and it is like um for growing up and stuff. I don't know. It's just young team Sh- attitude and all that sure kind no, of stuff. I, I, I think <coughs> when I come back to Scotland, I think things have, have changed. I think there's a lot of I see a lot of gallus people starting around 
you've got totally different values than I ever had and I think they're lost and I think they've got the, the wrong idea and I think that our education system has got worse. It's, Definitely. It's, it's patently clear that there have been so many good anti-addiction, anti-drug, anti-knife initiatives. It's, it's false to say nothing's been done. It's one of the reasons mm -hmm. when I never knew Andy well. I watched him, but I never knew him as a player. I think he got in touch with me and, and talked about, through Mark Greedy, and talked about the time he was putting into, if it's not, if you wouldn't call it social work, the time he was putting right. out into helping people that he recognised coming from the same point of view as him, the same experience as him, um, in some instances in his youth, the same deprivation as him. And, and I, I listened to him and I, and I thought, I, I've now heard quite a lot of initiatives that I really admire, but I look at the country, stand back in a mm -hmm. wide focus, and I think our, our social support systems, our, our hospitals, our social services, um, our education systems, which is where somebody who might be underserved at home can learn new ideas and rules and, and concepts and can mimic mm -hmm. what they see around them. It's been undercut for, for generations. And I do, I do genuinely believe that, you know, it's a, it's a strategic conservative idea that if you deny people things that make them robust and intelligent mm -hmm. and articulate, we can steal from the country more easily. It's not just now. I think that's been mm -hmm. going on, you know, for a very long the greater part of my lifetime, in my opinion. And I see it in Scotland now, and I, I don't hugely in, in, enjoy what I witness, and it's very different here. And if you had a day, I, I could go on defining the differences that I see and, and why I think they happen here. But it is still, I'll tell you, I'll use broad brush phrases. When I came here, it was so different in terms of there were greengrocers, there were banks everywhere, there were bakers everywhere, there were chemists everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the behaviour of people in public, and I think a concept called civismo, which is just civic mm -hmm. behaviour, which you'd be f fucking laughed at if you tried to put, you'd be, you'd be thought of as a, at best an old fuddy-duddy if you brought that forward in most communities in Scotland. <laughs> but but it's, a, it's, a, it's a honeycomb at the heart of good society. Anyway, mm -hmm. When I moved here, it reminded me of my little village outside Aberdeen in 1966, 1967. They hadn't been ravaged by Thatcherism. They they come out of a dictatorship that only ended in 1975, and therefore they were on a time release that was so different from Britain. So when I say behind, mm -hmm. I don't mean it in a pejorative way. But they hadn't been ravaged by the shite that's been ravaging our country including Aye. Tony Blair's fucking everything's okay, get rich, like you say, look the other way, pish. <laughs> well, well, they fucking forged documents to go and invade a country. And David Kelly, the, the guy who was a whistleblower, fucking ends up dead in an alleged suicide. All that shit. So long and short is that over here, things have changed. And if you spoke to my neighbours, they might say, oh, things were so much better. Okay, fine. But it's still... Mm -hmm dramatically different and in my opinion dramatically better here 
in terms of values, in terms of people's ideas about public service, in terms of people's willingness to protest, to use their vote, mm -hmm. what is and isn't acceptable in a, in a, in a social uh, context. So, long may it last, but it makes me, it's painful to talk about my, my whole nation and, and say it like that and maybe people that live there and say, well, he's, he's lived outside this country since 1997 and that's true. What the fuck does he know? But I'm saying what I see no, and I, I hear when I go back. I know, I think uh, you're bang on. I don't think there's any, anything there that I would argue with at all. I think I would agree with absolutely everything you said. Um, I think even looking at the fans, and I was going to ask you about this, like obviously we've got the big Celtic Rangers contingency, we've got the the kind of um, the, the religious aspect to that. Obviously Spain is predominant, predominantly Catholic um, and you've got the kind of hatred for Barcelona Real Madrid and I know that's kind of down to Franco and stuff like that, that kind of massive so I, I know why you'll be Barcelona but uh, it's obviously one of the ones where they, like I'm, I'm just, just trying to look at the, the way I see fans now and the way the way cocaine's widely used the way um alcohol is widely used on a Tuesday Wednesday night before work the way pubs are open to like two in the morning and a, and a Wednesday night after a Champions League game but does that happen in Spain Again, Sean, that's such a complicated question. You know, I'm not Mary Poppins. I've got wildness in me. And across mm -hmm. my life, I've lived wild. Mm -hmm. So whatever I say now, nobody should think I'm looking down my nose at, at people that choose to be like that intermittently. But when I, when I first got here in 1982 for the World Cup, when I visited umpteen times afterwards when I came to live here. Bars would bars would ease it, not clubs, bars, cafe bars, restaurant bars, and outright bars would easily be open until three, four, five in the morning. And often mm -hmm. it was the case that um if you were some bar owner, patron and and you thought you could make money or you didn't have much of a life, you all over the country when I went to work and after a game you'd look for lads, let's go out. But working, you, you take three or four people or whatever. Lads, let's go out and, and fucking get one on. You could easily find a bar run by some geezer who I interpreted, I intuited, didn't have much of a home life. I was like, mm -hmm. I'd rather be here earning a few bucks until six in the morning. And It wasn't even Lockie Inns. Lockie Inns were sick. When I was growing up, a Lockie Inn was a sacred concept. Can, can, can you find the right place? Are you one of the in crowd? Ah, the doors are closed. We've got enough. Two or three hours of fucking bevying off the clock. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> you didn't have to do that here. Gradually, that type of establishment, that type of person has increasingly died out. The licensing laws have become a little bit different in in Spain, it's not as relaxed, it's not as Mediterranean, it's not as mm -hmm. common for that to happen as it used to be. There's very few, you know, there's very few places that are absolutely, you know, dead at 11 or dead at 12 at night. But the, 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 the absolute guarantee you could have about in any city, villages and towns, maybe not, but anywhere you went that had a decent population, if you wanted to make an all night of it, 
all night. No sweat. No <laughs> exactly. Sweat. And um, I'm speaking as a first-hand witness. <laughs> um, so just I'll kind of bring just obviously we're kind of coming up kind of near the, near the end and I'm just kind of want to see the like the rivalries um, I know obviously I don't know if Balbao still do it like in the way that they'll only play Basque I don't know if they That's still right, do that you're right yeah, they do. is that right um, and I don't even, I think if Celtic were to do that in this day and age, and I know it's different that they're all the same religion, yeah, but if Celtic have Rangers, you wouldn't want to be fighting with Athletic for all the Basques. If Celtic went Basque, no, 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 certainly not. I know, I mean, I mean, not. it wasn't quite what you were meaning. I know, I know, I know. I know. But um, I'm just obviously interested in the kind of Real Madrid Barcelona rivalry with the fans. Is is it as intense as like the Celtic Rangers? It's it's again it's a complex subject. Um it, it it's it's you know, Real Madrid wasn't really the, the dictators club. I, I, I where has it come from, Sean? I think it's come Madrid was where the dictatorship was based. Mm -hmm. Franco was a horrible little man, typical fucking little man, a sort mm -hmm. of uh, captain mannering on testosterone, little cunt. And he tortured people in Catalonia that opposed him, that spoke out, that wanted democracy, and he banned through fear and intimidation the use of the Catalan language. Now, that's going to breed, because hatred gets passed on through generations, that's going to breed people who hate and who push back and who resent and who remember. Mm -hmm. That was yes. that was based towards Madrid. And also, there's, there's a, you know, there's, if, if you'll allow me, not be Jovic, but in theory, Glasgow and Edinburgh don't like each other. Liverpool and Manchester mm -hmm. don't like each other. So mm -hmm. first of all, Barcelona and, and Madrid are, are kind of, Two wildly different places, a port, an international outward looking city. Uh, we are the kings, we are the posh boys, we are we rule landlocked mm -hmm. urban centre. So that was gonna cause friction anyway, just like you know, London, Manchester, Manchester, Liverpool, Edinburgh, mm. uh, Glasgow. <laughs> Aberdeen and the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, we're going to win. Fuck you all. Um, so if you throw in oppression, which, you know, did happen during a long, long dictatorship, and then you have two clubs where, you know, Barcelona looked on an envy as Madrid dominated Europe one time and time again. What was it? How many in a row did they win? I don't know. 56 through to... Aye. 62 or 63, I don't know. It was 6 in a row, I think. And then they began winning it again, and Barcelona couldn't win until 1992. So in football terms. And I remember Laporta once using... I interviewed Laporta now, I mean, that fucked me, nearly 20 years ago, maybe, yeah, when he first took over at Barcelona, and he talked about Cruyff arriving. And he'd been a schoolboy, Laporta, at that stage. So Cruyff arrives as a footballer. Turns to, mm -hmm. I actually tried to sell him to Real Madrid. Johan being a stubborn bugger just goes, I'm not going there. Oh, and I'll tell you what else as well. Right, I'm going to Barcelona. <laughs> this is what happens. They cut, he, he arrives two years before 
uh, Franco dies. So it's still a dictatorship. Things had loosened a little bit. But nonetheless, it was not a democracy. It was still a dictatorship. And Cruyff arrives. And he had this, you know, he had the long, lanky hair. And he looked like Nuraev. And he looked... And, and um, Laporta said that it was just like a... a, a you know those movies like... The, where did they do it? The Wizard of Oz. It's black and black and white and black and white. And she, she uh -huh. walks out and opens the it's colour. And he said, that's what it felt like. He said... The world was paying attention to us. We felt proud of ourselves again. Everybody, wanted, all the boys wanted to cut their hair the way that, that Johan Cruyff did. We were internationally famous. We could, we could do that. So if he's saying all that from his childhood in 1973, you can understand the, the feelings that some in Catalonia had about we're being, we're being dominated. Maybe it's a Scotland-England thing. They look down on us. They sneer at us. They, they, they steal. They, they're lazy through there. And because we're a port, we're, and the Catalans are industrious, they're hardworking. Aye. It's a sort mm -hmm. of blue collar place. Whereas there's an image of Madrid where they're like they're all wearing fancy suits. You know, they've, they've all got the hair a little bit longer and it's greased back and they're sitting in and having it. So the images grow. Uh, what, what do you call that? Um, pigeonholes. Stereotypes grow. Where it's like the hard. I think was. Um, sort of. Presbyterian fucking Catalan and the louche, lazy, sneering Madrileño and bleh, from from that kind of <laughs> definition all kind of madness grows and they don't like each other simply, in, in my opinion in the football club sense at the moment it's got poisonous and nasty and finger pointing about who's bribing whom and who's not and who cheats and who gets all this and all that shite that you just right. have enough can't tolerate having to listen to all it. It's like the, it's the it's the football equivalent of the water companies in England pouring fucking sewage into the river. Like, leave my fucking river alone. And that's what I feel about mm -hmm. the stuff that's going on right now in Spain about the finger point between the two clubs. It's disgraceful no. and it's it's ruinous and it's stupid and it's infantile and it's poisonous. But when when it reached its modern height. Uh, that series of how many classicals shown? Four classicals in 18 days or 20 days, uh, which was the league, um, the cup final won by Madrid, the first right. leg of the semi final won by Barcelona, and the second leg of the semi final, which I think was 1 1. Those four, uh, they're called the classical wars. So much was lumped into it, so much was on the line. Spoils were moderately evenly shared um, because it was a hell of a cup final that Cristiano Ronaldo won with that header from Di Maria's cross. It was an unbelievable game. Um, there was the sending off of Pepe and, and there was Mourinho and his whiny, bitchy, he's such <laughs> an arsehole. <laughs> the special one? <laughs> special needs, I think. I mean, fucking arsehole. Um, but he, in that press conference, just, he's like, if you've got a green lawn, he'll sneak out at night, climb over the fence and shit on it. Do you know what I mean? That's... <laughs> um, hello, Josie. Uh, that, that, that intensity of the rivalry, that world focus when the two teams were gloriously good, both of them, gloriously good. I love that, Sean. I love that. 
I was, I know, and it's obviously as we come up to the the, the kind of end, I've got like five viewer questions, right? And some get of them are them. actually kind of going into this, right? So the first one is actually for me, right? This is this is my take, right? The best player I've ever seen, right? The best player, that, in my opinion, right? And I, my big pal Colin knows loads and loads. Jimmy Johnson or Henry Larson, then I'll fall, no, I'll fall off my chair. Henry Larson is my favourite. He's right. my favourite player, Henry. But uh, the, the, the best player, right, I've ever seen was Ronaldinho, right, for one season, right? One season, it was unbelievable. Like, I, I, that's that was my take on things. All right, and never had the career Messi had in Ronaldo. Overall, they were better for one season. It was a season he scored the goal um, against Real Madrid, and the Real Madrid fans clapped. I thought that was that was when I was right into my football, and I just cannot believe how good he was that season. Who would you say is your favourite player, and uh, what like or the best player in the world you've ever seen? First, first of all, in the, in the spirit in which you intend it, who am I to say, Sean? Why on You've earth, got a lot to say. Why, no, but why on earth would I know the answer better than you would? Yes, I've met both of them, interviewed both of them fine. Yes, I've made my trade on being able to say things about football that football people like or admire or accept. But if you're telling me that in your lifetime you've never seen a better player than Ronaldinho, I'm not going to piss on your chips. <laughs> um, no. the, the thing for me is not about how quickly he, he he burned himself out and got fat because you're right Ronaldinho was just extraordinary and, and one of the things that made him special was one of the things that Barcelona started saying about him immediately which didn't really resonate with me Quickly, but Ferran Soriano, who's now at City, immediately, as soon as Ronaldinho came, said, he's our rock and roll signer. Aye. People used to talk about how Ronaldinho played with a smile on his face. And with the passage of the years, I suppose that becomes more important to me, more important as part of his, the memory of what he did. And... um when UEFA was celebrating its 50 year anniversary, they sent me along for one of the interviews, sent me along to Johan Cruyff's house and um, I had an hour with him and it was filmed and it was, it was wonderful. But he talked about how he himself as a player had had an idea, that, particularly when playing for Barcelona, if the previous week's game hadn't been good, he, he said, so I would go out deliberately. The first eight, ten minutes, I do a fuck about winning or scoring. Mm. I'd entertain, I'd do tricks, I'd do clever things, I'd take the piss out of an opponent just to get the crowd back on our side, up. And I thought, this is Ronaldinho's doing that at the moment. I thought, that's one that's pretty sneaky. And dude, that's, that's, that's lovely, lovely praise. I'll tell you where I go. Um, the comparison's unfair because Ronnie was a beast. Even at his fittest, he was huge. He was made of concrete. The number of players that I've talked to went up against him in training or in matches, and they said, you know, he'd get his arse out to ugly style or he'd, he'd be just protecting the ball, showing it one way or another. 
and they, they used to show me, they used to tell me, I'm going off, fucking bouncing my, <laughs> bouncing my head off. And <laughs> I saw them do magic, I agree with you. I was at that game where they won um, 3-0, and he scored twice that day that the Madrid fans applauded him. The honest answer is, I, I don't know. They're so different. Um, Messi has to be the greatest player, not only that I've ever seen, but in my opinion, if you can, if you if you think about comparisons with Cruyff or even De Stefano, mm. best who, who I saw live playing for Hibs, but Pele, Maradona, I. Listen, who, who, who can really evaluate and compare and put magic on a podium? I, I no. truly believe that, that, that Messi is the greatest of all time. And I mean not just on achievements or how long he's gone for. He's, he's, mm-hmm. he's supernatural. Supernatural. The thing that, that lifts him for me is the ability to do so many different things on the pitch in so many different positions to evolve and to get cleverer and more determined as life goes on. And the number of times, if you took Messi's best conglomerated year or two years and matched it up, in my taste, with anybody, the times my jaw dropped where I turned to somebody next to me in the stadium, wherever it was, and went, <laughs> that'll, do, that? that'll do me, Sean. But I go back to my original point. If if you said to me, you know, it's George McCluskey or Paul Wilson, then who the fuck would I be to argue with you? You know. <laughs> no. So I mean, I, you know, this is an amazing. I can't believe this question. So this is the second question, right? And it was for my pal Andy, who who and what today? This is unbelievable, right? Said. Do you know anything about Steve Archibald? And do you know anything about him bringing over the Spanish players for Airdrie? And I was actually like, when you said his name, I went, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. Steve is so funny. He's so, he's got a Sid James ducted chuckle. He's mischievous. He's a brilliant entrepreneur. That yesterday when we were, he was just driving me from where we had had our coffee to another spot where I was meeting, he was going to a meeting, do some work. Um, he was he came up with this, this brilliant idea that I can't, I can't share because it's a commercial idea that he wants, but since I've known him, it's been commercial idea after commercial idea. He's just a font of entrepreneurial, I tell you what, I, we could make this and that and the next thing. That goes on constantly. Um, he still plays both veterans football and he's a big uh, exponent of walking football. He wants to make walking football well-known and successful, but he's still playing full vets football with some really good ex-Barcelona players too. Mm-hmm. Um, still like that. We, in fact, we go to the same gym um, because there's a machine he was telling me about <laughs> that he's, he's, he's got in his house, but it it's a machine you get on and it kind of vibrates like that. 
<laughs> I have seen it. I've had it. He was telling me about it, and he said, You're so fucking noisy that I can't use it in my house because the, the neighbours complain and all that. And a couple of weeks later, by total fluke, I joined, uh, I changed the gyms, and I saw one of these machines got on, and I went, Oh, fuck. This must be which he was talking about. So I said to him, We've got one of these, and I showed him, he was right down there, and he, he joined. So we're at the same gym now, and we're such a laugh, man. He's, he's, he, he's a rascal. Um, I genuinely think, Andy, that he's gigantically underappreciated as, as, as somebody who was a brilliant, he could be a nine or a ten, he could play in partnerships or he could play alone. His first time, could, he's, I listen to him, I watch him now, his football intelligence is absolutely brilliant. He was never one of these players who was born with a gift, but couldn't explain it or couldn't um, extend his peripheral vision to to ideas. He could, you know, there are certain brands of sports people, not just footballers, who just do. And I think Steve Steve coached well at East Fife and at Edrie. I think he had now. Let me pick my words cleverly here. He had a very good uh, entrepreneurial idea about, um, I think, owning the club and owning the players and and. However it worked. <laughs> <laughs> However it worked. And it ended in Akram and I was re- and I was really sad. And I think that he'd have made I think he'd have made a really good coach. Really, really good manager or coach. And um he's a he's a really good friend. We we, we definitely will be talking every two, three days. And um again, it's a fucking piece of mentalness. Uh, what you used a f- what did you say? Synchronicity. When I was in London, and the idea, my wife said to me, Let's, you want to live in Spain. I don't, but you deserve, because we were looking at Madrid or Barcelona, and it was a flip of a coin. There was no Beckham then. Mm-hmm. And I went, well, let's make it Barcelona, because A, I need to live, I've always needed to live by a river or the sea. I have to have water around me to feel Aye. okay and to orientate myself. And B, Barcelona. Ch- chippy little cocky cunt. So I was like, <laughs> good enough for Steve Archibald, well, it's good enough for me. And I chose, and I phoned him actually from London. I phoned Steve, and, and yes, because I'd known him since 99, when I was still living in London. And I phoned him up whenever I was moving out of here. I said, listen, Steve, I'm going to get fucking pushed out of this job I'm in by the bad boy upstairs. It's going to happen, and I'm prepping up now. I've got a daughter. I only have one daughter at the time. I've got a daughter. She's in school up London. She loves it. It's going really well. We're going to... She doesn't know it. We're going to pull her out and move to Barcelona. Where would you recommend? And he put a lot of time into saying to me, this school, that school, this area, that area, just out of the goodness of his heart, you know, because by that stage, we'd only known each other two, three years. And here we are great chums now, but if Andy remembers him properly as a Scotland striker, as in a, I mean, he came to us as a midfielder, Sean, signed by um, Billy McNeil from Craig Brown's Clyde, came as a midfielder, Aye. transferred to being a striker, and in that season when um, the Dandies won the league, yeah, we had to go to Celtic Park twice in about 10 days, because we were a postponed game, we had to win both. And we won both, and Steve was the best player on the pitch each time. And in those days, to go to Parkhead and win was a big deal. 
to go and win twice in the space of 10, 15 days was immense. That's huge. That was, it was all on Steve. Brilliant. So um, the, the, the next two questions, right? The last one was, was actually for Barry T, right? 87, who says, what about Lamine Yamel? And can you see similarities between him and Messi? Oh, listen, Barry. <laughs> one, Lamine Yamal does a Chris Wardle to me. I'm off my seat all the time. I literally can't believe what he does. So like, did he stuff the ball up his jumper and, and point point <laughs> to the stand and everybody looked the wrong way and he, he ran the other way because how he gets out of tight situations is brilliant. But we've 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 seen jinky players before. What what I don't think we see very often is a kid who's still, you know, not only sixteen, but when he started playing for Barcelona he was barely sixteen. And his brain says, This is the right option, that's the right option, that's the right option, and again this is the right option. His his ability to match his his skill. He's very left-footed, so Barry's making a comparison with Messi, which is totally understandable. He's probably he's probably at Messi's level at at, at sixteen. I think he's, he's done things that Messi hadn't at sixteen, mm-hmm. but that might mm-hmm. be because of the circumstances of the club. His right foot is not as good as Messi's was at that age. His right foot is a is a potential problem, but he's he's quick. He seems to have a good brain in, in just simply human terms. He's got a very good football brain and peripheral vision, and he understands how his skills fit. And he's not like Cristiano was at United until Ruud van Nistelrooy and Alex Ferguson said to him, it's not about the tricks, it's not about the step it's about efficacy. Lamina Miles got that age 16, so Barry, your, your choice is good, your vision is good. He's literally extraordinary. Brilliant player. Brilliant, fun, so much fun. I think a lot of people are kind of looking forward to him coming up. So the last one is for Chiefy, right? Chiefy 100, who says, what is your best match of all time and the best interview with a player or manager? Uh, the best match is is not easy, um, but I'm probably going to pick uh, three. The first is Aberdeen at home to Bayern Munich in the quarter-final of the Cupness Cup in 1983 and winning despite being 1-0 down and 2-1 down at home. Thinking about it now just makes me feel uh, <laughs> electric, Titanic, like Superman. Yeah, Just Aye. go back and watch it, uh, Chiefy. Uh, the second one would be uh, the World Cup final of 2010. We've been with Spain the whole way, interviews, Events, traveling with them, same plane with the Spain team, same hotel with the Spain team, me, my helper, and my cameraman. And we get to the final, and some half wit bent from FIFA was like, Well, the helper boy watches the final in the canteen, uh, the cameraman watches it in the press center, and you can watch it on the stand. I was like, I mean, I'm literally you can fucking stick that right up your ass. <laughs> and we fought and we bitched and we scratched and somebody overruled that and gave us a pitch position. So we are on grass, yeah, about 15 feet to the right of the Spain dugout and the tension. These people are desperately wanted to win. The, the, when Arjun Robin goes running through and he can see a sneaker, saves it with his big toe. 
I almost had a heart attack when Iniesta scored. I couldn't believe it. it. It was just an unbelievable experience. And the last one I go to might be the Champions League final of 99. Um, it's Alex Ferguson. I'd been at every Manchester United game of any meaning that season. Trebles weren't won really by um, British clubs. Celtic had done it in 67. Bayern Munich, I, I think. No, Bayern Munich hadn't done it then. Forget PSV Eindhoven had done it, but United did the treble. They they played not particularly well. They missed schools in Keen, and I'd done my work and I'd filed the, the match report and and, and sharing them in Solskjaer's score and I had to refile it quickly, and then argue with my editor and <laughs> and the Prime Minute fans go out, and there's just United fans there. And all I can see is the Aberdeen manager going up to lift the European Cup. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you ever watched that. I don't know what that program is. Uh, Callum Gilhooley uh, in in a Scottish comedy program, and he says, "I had an out of Anorak experience. I had an out of Anorak experience. Out of body <laughs> experience." All I saw, Sean Chiefy, was the Aberdeen manager going up to lift the European Cup, and and that was emotional. It was a match which. The way people consumed what I'd written changed my career forever. The head of Sky Sports phoned me and put me on TV because of it and all kinds of stuff. You never know the moment. So those three games, those three games, uh, Chief, you'll just have to accept an answer when I don't pick one. <laughs> no, brilliant. Listen, Graham, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, honestly. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And um, I'll, I'll honestly just can I say anymore? No, Thank you very much for being listen, on. Listen, uh, uh, Sean and Paul, listen, you can put this out in 10 minute segments and it'll keep us going until the year 3000. So <laughs> I'm honoured to have been asked. Thank you for everybody putting questions. Hello, Andy at work. And um, as he used to say on Radio 1, anybody else who knows me, Sean, I wish you huge good luck in everything that you do. And if I can ever help you, um, you can count on me.